This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 17th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Core inflation is in old standby to measure inflation, but it does not include key components of how we spend our dollars today, like energy. The illusions created by core inflation may also have helped inflate the rapidly deflating housing bubble. So says Cato Institute senior fellow Jerry O'Driscoll. Basically, uh, detail in, in a few minutes. What is your problem with core inflation? Well, my problem with core inflation is it excludes the products that the ordinary consumer buys every day, food and energy, and which he really or she really cannot avoid buying every day, and overweight goods which are bought uh, infrequently and episodically, so that it systematically understates the real inflation that ordinary consumers face in their day-to-day lives. Now, what's the argument for leaving uh, energy and food out of this, you know, major measure of inflation? Well, it goes back to the to the 1970s and the oil price shocks, and then to uh, you know to some uh, weather-related events with agriculture, which of course is reminiscent of what's going on today. And these are what are called supply shocks, and they weren't necessarily recurring. We had two big oil shocks in the 70s, separated by years, and that was viewed correctly as a one-time increase in the price level, and they didn't want that to distort uh, the, the inflation rate that they were trying to influence. Uh, well, lots have changed since the 70s, starting with the fact that we're not experiencing, primarily not experiencing supply shocks, but systematic and continuous increases in demand. The, the price action is coming primarily on the demand side for both food and agriculture, and you don't want to exclude that because your monetary policy is obviously influencing it, if not driving it. So the, the problem with excluding energy from core inflation is exacerbated by the fact that people are spending a higher share of their incomes on it? Yes. And you're understating uh, the, the real impact, what economists would call the welfare impact, and, and even the output effects of inflation on the economy. Um, and similarly with food, and now the food problem is intertwined with the energy price because we're using food for energy, the so-called biofuel problem issue. And this means now that not only is there um, uh, all the direct effects of increasing global demand on food, but some food is a substitute in an economic sense for oil, and so whatever happens in the oil market uh, reverberates through a feedback loop into the food market, and so energy prices drive food prices. The focus on core inflation also uh, has a lot to do with uh, the housing bubble. Um, the, 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 trouble, the trouble that occurred at the Central Bank, at the Federal Reserve, was they began to believe this, this constructed measure uh, and, and lulled themselves into a sense that we really had low inflation. In fact, you would, you would hear people, otherwise intelligent people, saying there's no inflation in the economy. So that this reinforced whatever else was going on in the minds of Alan Greenspan and his colleagues at the Fed, and they kept interest rates really low. Remember when they were 1% for a year, not only low in nominal terms, but negative in real or inflation-adjusted terms. And that fueled the housing bubble. With this housing bubble, we seem to have two people running for president, both of whom want to stabilize home prices. 
and it's you know it's been predicted a long time ago by Hayek and Mises that attempting to stabilize the prices of final goods would uh, do nothing to uh, cure the underlying problem. And the simply an, a general an increase in general price inflation isn't going to bail out housing because there's been a relative price decline in the in the house in the price of housing. Um, the the combination of the easy credit policies of the Fed together with a number of call them social policies to get people into houses um, meant led to very uh, lax lending practices, as we well know now. And the percentage of, of home ownership rate went up several percentage points above its long-term average trend. That is, a lot of people became homeowners who weren't homeowners before. And there was no market failure. They weren't homeowners for a variety of reasons. They neither, either they didn't want to own a home or they couldn't afford to own a home. So that the housing stock rose to supply this artificial demand, and that's gone away. So one of two things has to happen. If we're going to fill up the, the, the millions of vacant homes that we have in this country, and in some cities like, say, Las Vegas, it's really a large percentage of the housing stock. If you want to fill those homes up, you have to have a drastic decline in prices. If you recognize those homes should never be built, the cheapest thing might be in some cases, in some cases, for, for a program to buy up those homes and just bulldoze them. All right. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty stark uh, answer there. Well, that actually happened uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 80s in Texas when they had their own regional boom because of the, uh, of the oil price. And uh, they uh, had this huge development in East Dallas of really shoddily produced condominiums, and the whole thing was fraudulently, there was a lot of fraud involved, people went to jail over it, and they were, they were falling apart before they were finished, and uh, they bulldozed them. Aren't there some benefits to trying to uh, stabilize the value of the, at these questionable assets that are being held by these banks? Well, if Certainly, uh, a benefit to the banks in the near to intermediate term, uh, in that they can uh, preserve more of the value of their mortgages. Some of these mortgages that that wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't get anything on. People would walk away. Perhaps by reducing the value of the mortgage, they would get something. Um, and for people who bought their house, let's say in the last couple of years, then maybe they wouldn't go underwater. But there's, there's a flip side. Uh, the decline in the value of housing, the availability of a large housing stock, unoccupied or abandoned by uh, homeowners who walked away from their mortgage, means that people who had never been able to own a home or would have had to wait years can buy one. And that's that's what's been happening locally where I live. The low end of the market is starting to come back really strongly. Uh, and that's people probably in some cases who would have been renters but now can become buyers. So for everybody you benefit, you hurt somebody else. The chatter on news programs, as home values continue to decline, we will see rising interest rates. And the prediction from that is that because of rising interest rates, the people who would otherwise be snatching up these 
uh, lower-end homes uh, will not be able to afford to do so? Well, there are entrepreneurs running around and have been for some time uh, buying, uh, buying housing, good housing stock, you know, at, in, in wholesale quantities, you know, at auctions, 100 homes at a time. They're auctioning these off at the kinds of prices that people can pay cash for a house. So um, where there are going to be severe declines in the price of houses, um, uh, people will find a way to acquire them. In any case, interest rates for prime borrowers uh, have not gone up very much and in some cases have come down depending on when they last, you know, when they last got their mortgage. If they got their mortgage about five years ago, they're about flat. It's about the same for a prime borrower. Gerald P. O'Driscoll is a Cato Institute Senior Fellow and is a former Vice President of the Dallas Federal Reserve. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. You can read O'Driscoll's analysis, Asset Bubbles and Their Consequences, at Cato.org.